Welcome to Made in Mari, the podcast that focuses on the successes and struggles of local businesses. Let's get started. My name's G, I'm your host, and today I have the pleasure of communicating with Paul Harvey, who runs market-that.com. He describes himself as something like a digital fixer, but I think it's more than that. So first of all, good morning. And secondly, tell us about what it is exactly that you do. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me on the program today. I've called myself a digital fixer for a couple of years uh, because I solve people's digital problems, particularly business owners I work with. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit more than that, really, about them solving a digital problem. I'm moving more into the idea of being a marketing coach because what I notice most of the time is that when people come to sell or promote their business, they don't actually know what it is they're selling. They may be selling a widget. They may be selling something. But actually what they're selling is the good feelings or the positive aspects of how the person who buys that thing feels about it. You, know, you don't buy you buy a chair because it's a nice looking chair, but actually you buy a chair because you want to be comfortable when you sit down. So is this related to the idea that emotions drive sales? Yeah, well, that's that's the, isn't it really? I mean, that that's that is the one thing that was discovered a long time ago is that people actually make decisions based on emotion most of the time. Mm. Uh, and and, and and we're seeing this now, but we'll get to that. But most of the time, people will buy, will make a decision based entirely on emotion, and they'll justify it with logic. Uh-huh. So that's where these two elements of facts and feelings kind of kind of come together, kind of join. Yeah. Yeah. So the the facts are used to justify the emotional decision. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, the emotional decision, and we're getting into some quite detailed stuff, and I'm not a psychologist, but I... I but this is, but this is good already. This is good already. I like I've it. I've done a lot of stuff on this before. The problem is, of course, is that our emotional decisions mm-hmm. don't necessarily have any rational basis. Mm. So, so that this is why the shopaholic will feel better by shopping, but it's actually nothing to do with the shopping. It's about feeding a deeper need. Wow. So if the deeper need was like they never had they never had enough toys as a child or they, they were they were deprived of a child, the fact that they can do this thing now as an adult feeds that lost child. Uh-huh. So a lot of people could possibly be driven by feelings, emotions, past experiences that they're not actually aware of. Um, yeah, that's that's very possible. That's very oh. possible. Wow, and, and it takes self-awareness to, to to appreciate some of these things. I mean, it depends on the on the thing. I mean, some people will uh, start a business and chase money, and be desperately trying to get you know chase the big bucks, mm-hmm. and be desperately unhappy in the process. Mm-hmm. And then they arrive at this fantastic goal they set out for themselves, and they're still bloody unhappy. So what can they do? Because it's they're, they're trying to they're trying to feed something that they haven't recognised. Well, you've got to do the inner work. Okay. I mean that's that's we once we do the inner work and realise what our triggers are and what and why we do what we do, then we're a lot more then we're less susceptible to this mm-hmm. stuff that approach that that happens around us. Less susceptible susceptible to the buying aspects of it. 
Mm. I mean, we're seeing it now. Obviously, obviously, we're having this conversation by Skype because this is, you know, we are we are in a weird world at the moment as we sit here on the 24th <laughs> of, of March in the yeah. middle of a, of a pandemic. You know, we're in a, in a, in a, in a, in a situation. In the last couple of weeks, people have been buying bog rollers that was going out of fashion. Mm. Now it's like, you know, what has caused people to be that frightened about bog roll? Well, that's a great that's a great question. Um, could, maybe maybe you can enlighten me because well, I, mean, I don't have the actual answer why they're doing it. But I mean, it's clearly, it's the bog roll was the focus for some reason, and I don't know why it was the focus for some reason. But people, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a blog post about that fear and scarcity. Yeah, and scarcity is a is a massive trigger in terms of all marketing. So. In terms of, I mean, what, I can come back to another point on or later on about the thing, but scarcity is the most powerful marketing driver you can use. And it's, it's used a lot, you know, sale ends now. Yep. Sale ends Friday. Black yep. Friday deals. These are all scarcity offers. Everything must go. Everything must go. So, so this is about the fear of missing out, the fear of not having something. Mm. And that's a very primal thing. It really gets goes right through into that. Now, in terms of people's fear and scarcity that we've been having over the last few weeks, there's a couple of drivers here. The, the biggest fear that most people fear in life is dying. Right. Whenever you put it down to anything else, you can always put it back to death. People fear dying. Okay. Okay. So out in the world, this this pandemic that was coming even though the risk factor was incredibly low for most people the risk factor is incredibly low of actually dying from this disease mm -hmm. or this this virus mm -hmm. but still it's a greater risk than most of us have ever faced you know in our everyday lives we don't face anything that probably would kill us and saying that, I mean, getting in a car and driving a car in a, in, a, in a busy place, you have a higher tendency. If you drink a little bit too much and walk down dark lanes at night to get yourself home, you have a tendency, you have a possibility of getting run over. But it's not something that you're conscious of, those risks. But this thing, mm. suddenly this is a new risk and I'm conscious of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, just as you were talking there, um, I had a lot of things racing through my mind and when you said scarcity, it made me think about my own choices. And yes, I do think I can get it now. What if I can't get it in the future? I guess I have to get it now because maybe it won't be available. And so, wow, yeah, scarcity is a, a great personal driver for me. And also, I, I think when you mentioned dying and death as well, that's something that... <clears throat> rests at the back of everybody's mind it's not going to be something that they're fully conscious of all the time but it's definitely going to influence their choices well the issue there the death thing is that as a society we have put death in the closet we've hidden death away mm. if you go in, went if you go back to the you know 100 years plus Death was a normal part of life. People died of TB. People died of all sorts of things. It was regular to lose people. It was it was it was not nice. It was it was hard, mm -hmm. but everybody knew someone that was dying or had died. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. You know, when I, when I think of the people that I know that die personally, it's probably one or two people a year. Yeah. 
But if you go back 100 years, probably 30, 40, 50 people you knew every year would die. Yeah, and in addition to that, there were the wars and conflicts as well that, that took people yeah. out of society. Yeah, so you, you had this relationship with death that we don't have anymore. So death is more frightening than it's ever been. Yeah, because it's not ever dealt with. And I guess in the past, maybe churches and religions brought up the subject and allowed people to think about it. But now it seems to me, at least, that the focus is maybe different because we've got this focus on <clears throat> medicine or nutrition or whatever is going to help us live longer. We medicalized it. We took yeah. it out of the family, out of the home, put it into hospitals. We created all sorts of things around it that, that kept kept it at bay, and so we took it. We took away. We 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 took away our relationship with it. So that's this massive fear. That's why this fear is so great because we're so frightened of that subject. Wow. So you you talked about fear, scarcity, and I think risk is the other key in that. So how does how does risk relate to uh, the fear and the scarcity and can you tie it into how it works maybe with a business or marketing or selling products and things like that how, how does it all come together well, risk is relatively new in terms of that uh, the, the risk is entirely relevant to the event that we're currently in because it's, it's the risk level is risen it's, it's heightened so it becomes an issue I, in under normal conditions in terms of the sales process risk is never there so so what is there in terms of uh, the way uh, okay the way marketing works in terms of the influence process that someone goes through in order to make a decision a buying decision you have to like the people you're buying from or like the business you're buying from mm -hmm. you have to know about that business mm -hmm. you have to trust that business mm -hmm. and then there are other deciding factors that will come in which will be things like social proof so when your friends tell you that's a good place to go to and then finally, um, if there's scarcity involved, or if the business gives things away, is generous in some way, there's a reciprocity that they do. Mm -hmm. So if they do things that are that are generous, then then that again that opens up more more good feelings towards the business. So um, this was the work of a guy called Robert Cialdini uh, in the states. He he did lots of analysis on how the most effective salespeople worked. And he discovered that these were there were six points that were critical to be in place. Authority, uh -huh. authority was the key one. Are they the authority in the conversation? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, do they do they have? I mean, do you like them? Are they likable? So he's like yeah. businesses that have a have a, you know you, you, we've all met them. We've all met you know gone into businesses where we've had a bad response because the, either the owner or someone is is less courteous. I'm not going back there again. Yeah, it's very true that you're more likely to do business with someone that you like than you don't like. How does that, in a digital way, tie into modern sales businesses such as Amazon and eBay and stuff? Is, is, is there a connection there? Because it would seem to me that maybe Amazon and eBay have bypassed that problem by creating a system that doesn't really give you contact with the person. 
it's just a thought. Well, I don't know. Okay, so let's let's, expl- let's unpack this a bit and, 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 and go back, step backwards first, and then we'll come, then we'll come forward again. Okay, so okay. if we go back to when Cialdini was doing his work, it, he he published his book. Um, I think it was called Persuasion, Persuasion and Influence. I think it might have been. I can't remember the name of it, but it was published in '84, and he was doing that work in the '70s. That research. Now, at that time, there was obviously no internet. There was there was basic, you know, there was there was the the society that we knew. So there was lots of clubs around, lots of business clubs. Mm-hmm. There were there was there would have been Rotary. There would have been uh, the Masons. There would have been other forms of business associations. Yeah. And being in those associations was part of being in business. And so you formed friends in those associations. You went drinking with them. You had meals with them. You went to play golf with those people. Mm-hmm. You were at the bar in the golf club. Mm-hmm. You were offering drinks. You did took out business lunches. You can see all this kind of stuff that happened. There was reciprocity going on. There was relationships being built. So that's how we worked it out. And there was authority. So there would have been the club captain or have you, or someone who had a, a, a position of authority in the organization who people would look up to. So all of those things were there at that time. That's what he was noticing. And what happened in the digital world is we took those components and we now use them in the digital world. So in terms of you or I, in terms of our business world, so I'm a digital marketer. I will do things like um, podcasts. I will do things like um, webinars. And in those things, I am speaking. I'm talking about my subject. Even sitting here, I'm doing the same sort of thing. I'm expressing and demonstrating my authority in this area. So anyone listening to this will see me as the authority in that conversation. And so I can talk to you and I'm affable. I'm, I'm approachable. So I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I try to be likable. Mm-hmm. I, I'm generous. I offer things to people. I, I, I give things away. I give reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Now, when you give reciprocity, what happens there is that people feel a little obliged to you. If they, if they like you and they're following you, they see you as an authority. And as an authority, I give something away. People feel inclined to be receptive to, to me when I speak to them. Mm. So if I, if I give someone a, you know, a, a, an e-book or something and they give me their email address, there's a transaction that's just happened. So these are the things that we do in digital marketing. We build authority. We do stuff. We give stuff away. We give free stuff. And then eventually at some point we say, this is what I'm offering by this. And that's, that's how it works in terms of the digital world. That's what the digital world did. It took those structures, those things that, that Sheldini identified and turned them into digital comparisons. Now, what Amazon have done and the big chains have done is They've taken the seat of the authority. So Amazon have a system and their system is the authority. So you can be pretty sure that if you buy from Amazon, you're not going to get you're not going to lose your money because they have the structure. If you don't like what you get, if you don't like something in Amazon, they will let they will let you send it back and not at your cost at the at the at the, at the seller's cost. So, you know, you've got all this security and safety by working with Amazon. Yeah. They use the um, social proof system. So Amazon have all these um, reviews at the bottom of the page and these stars. Those stars are incredibly powerful. When someone sees four-star reviews and five-star reviews, it's a deciding factor about buying something. I'm just having these flashes go through my head as you're speaking, looking at all the things I've been doing in my life in just the last week. 
I think you've you've just condensed all my choices into uh, a very succinct description of why I do everything that I do. Wow! Just just yesterday, I was <clears throat> uh, deciding whether or not to buy a piece of digital content, and as you said, I looked at the stars. How many stars did it get? And um, you know, I also read a bit of you know why people wrote it's one star yeah. and why people wrote it's five star, and then yeah. obviously used that as a method to make my decision. Yeah, no, that's, that's what's going on all the time. Yeah, it goes on all the time, and, and it's because we can't make a decision. Now that's another thing. As humans, we are terrible at making decisions. <laughs> we make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> We're terrible at making decisions. It's very, you, know, you when you meet someone that's very good at making decisions, they're amazing. But it, we are. I mean, you go to a restaurant and you give them, give them menus out to the family at a restaurant. And everyone looks at the menu. What you're having? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and then you ask. The, then, then you don't know, so you ask the waiter, and the waiter's like, well, I don't know. You choose what you want to choose. Well, it's like, I have this other thing with my wife. Because she said, "What are you having?" Because why is that? Because I might want yours. <laughs> Yeah, it's always a risk, right? <laughs> you don't know. And then if we find something we like, we tend to stick to it and then miss out on other opportunities. If you always order the same thing from the menu, there's gonna you're gonna miss a little bit of spice in life. Yeah. So that's when you go again. Same thing. You, you go to the waiter and say, "What's the best one of these desserts?" Well, people like the other people like this one. This one is very popular. And suddenly, the social proof of other people's choices has helped you make a choice. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that maybe we're really, really bad at making decisions, but somehow we trust other people's choices when they must be. Yeah, when they must be just as bad as us at making decisions. Yeah, and I put that probably back to a bit of herd instinct, isn't it, really? It's like you think about it, it's like, you know, well, it's like people going out at the moment, not going out and not going out. If people see people in the park, well, they're in the park. Maybe I could go in the park. My they're God, doing that. Maybe it's life, all right. Mate. You're describing my life. <laughs> just, just, I was, I was just this morning looking out going, there's people in the park. Maybe I should go out in the park as well. <laughs> Yeah, we do. So we, we are like walking down, a, like walking down the busy street, looking for restaurants, looking for something to eat. When you see someone's busy, you think, "Oh, that looks interesting. It's busy. They must be doing well. It must be a good food." Yeah, I want to go where the people go. Because mm. mm. it must be popular for a reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, I guess, this is why I love, I enjoy doing what I do because I'm so fascinated by the by the mechanics of this about the about why you know what you know about identifying the story around something and leading people down the path and it's like so okay so as a digital marketer the thing that we do with clients is identify the pain points that someone has uh-huh. so i mean we talked about the decision-making process about buying something, but let's talk about why someone's in that decision process. So in terms of, if you offer a product into the, have you, have you, I'm not sure if your listeners will understand this. Let's, let's, let's start. There's a thing called the 80-20 principle, the Pareto principle. 
I'm aware of and it, this, but I think it needs to be reinforced. It needs to be, and, and, it, and it is really bloody scary, the Pareto principle, because it is absolutely merciless in, its, in how it works. There is no escaping this process. So what it says is that 80%, all right, let's take an example of something. In, the, in my house, for example, in my house, I will spend 80% of my time in just 20% of the space. That makes sense. I can, I can understand So if that. you think about it, I spend most of the time in the bedroom where I'm sleeping, yeah. a large chunk of my time there. Mm. The fact that I work from home, I spend a large chunk of my time here. And the other place, because I'm the cook of the house, in the kitchen. So in those three rooms, I spend most of my day. I spend eight hours probably sleeping in my bed. I spend probably getting on for six hours plus in this room here. Mm. And the other couple of hours are probably in the, in, in the kitchen. And then I might spend an hour in my living room at night and maybe less than an hour in the dining room and probably 15 to 30 minutes in the bathroom on a daily basis. Can you see what I mean? That, that's how that, the world, that my space splits up. But that thing works everywhere. So they found in companies, 80% of the sales will be done by 20% of the work up by the sales force. Yeah. 80%. Yeah, it means the top salesmen are the top salesmen. Does this mean or does this tie into the idea that possibly 80% of your profits will be related to the work of 20% of your team or business or company or something like that? For a company, you can, for a largest, well, any company, 80% of their profit will come from 20% of their clients. Okay, right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, okay, so yeah. that works out because now that's natural because you think some clients are good big clients and they get so what happens they naturally become bigger clients. Right. And so there was a there was a thing years ago. I remember in the eighties and nineties, a big rationalisation happened in a lot of companies where um, large organisations were hiving off the bottom end of their of their client basis to to, to kind of like their best customers. They would go to their customer and say, look. We don't want to handle the bottom end of the market here. We're going to give them to you. They would okay. get because because what tends to happen in a large organization, if you can focus on the top 20 percent, you will get more return because 80 percent of your profit comes from there. Mm -hmm. And the other 80 percent you got, they tend to give you more work. And, you know, you, you, know, you find that you, know, you get a little customer that wants something that they'll love. And can I have some special packaging? And can I have this? And can I have that? And they'll you, you know, it's one order that's making us, giving us so much trouble. Yeah. So this 80-20 rule applies to absolutely everything in life. Is it possible that the 80-20 the rule could be a trap for people, that they fall into consistently relying on a certain group of people for information or a certain source of information and maybe it's being not correct or it does it mean that people miss things or is it good or bad i mean um i think the 80 20 rule is neither good nor bad it's a mathematical factor i think okay. what is about it is that if you're on the wrong side of 80 20 um so in the world wealth is the same 80 percent okay. of the world's wealth is within 20 percent of the people but it's actually getting worse than that now um, because the 8020, uh, this is this is math and it's going to get complicated, but 8020 is a fractal. So so if I do 8020, 
the 20 that I've got left will also do 80-20. Okay. Okay, so we're looking at spiral, a spiral here. Well, what you're yeah. looking at, yeah, what you're looking at effectively is that that twenty percent will split down into sixteen four. That's okay. 80 percent, yeah. Okay. So the four percent will, which is less than five percent of the entire entire marketplace, will have probably. I can't remember the numbers now. But it's a significant amount of wealth gets concentrated in the top 5%. And we see this in the world. We see wealth distribution in the world is concentrated into a tiny proportion of the people that live on the planet. Mm. So, all right, so that's that's the harsh side of 80-20. Now, all let's right. look at it from a sales perspective. Mm -hmm. So if I'm selling something into the marketplace, 80-20 still applies. Mm -hmm. So... Let's say I'm doing something about, I'm selling a diet plan. So I've got a okay. diet plan for obesity, right? So in terms of the marketplace, 80% of the people I'm talking to will not be conscious or aware of the problem that they have. Okay. Yeah, I eat a bit. I enjoy my food. Is it doesn't it, matter to me. It doesn't affect me. Is this something that could generally be put across the board for businesses selling services to people where a lot of the people wouldn't actually realize that they need the service or they could use yes. the product okay yes so 80 percent of people the problem is not a problem for them they don't they're not aware of it and <laughs> and it's that's fine right that's great yeah the 16 percent in the middle this 16 percent they are conscious of the problem they know they've got a problem okay but it's not actually causing them any difficulty and they're not actively seeking a solution Okay. Okay. Wow. And the four percent at the top, they are the people that know they've got a problem and they are actively seeking a solution. And so, as a marketer, what we do is we find ways of talking to the twenty percent. We sell to the five percent because we know they've got a problem; they want to solve it now. Mm -hmm. And the sixteen percent, what we do with them is we aggravate their pain. We find okay. a way of of absolutely finding that pain, rubbing salt into that pain, and making it really bloody painful. So they then make a choice to move over to the 5%. They move it, move over from the choice of it not being an issue to the point of it actually now being an issue. So in terms of the obesity factor, mm -hmm. I'm overweight, it doesn't matter. I enjoy my food. Okay. The doctor says to you, you're overweight. Ah, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Okay, you're overweight, your knees are packing up, uh, and you're now cl getting close to type 2 diabetes. You really need to start thinking about doing something about this. Oh, yeah, I suppose I do. I'm now thinking about it. Right. The next time you go to the doctor, he says to you, now, this is serious now. I need you to lose some weight because you are going to die if you don't lose some weight. Okay. Now I've moved away from, now I'm in the, I know I've got a problem and, he, you know, I'm aware of the problem. It doesn't matter. Now I'm in, I've got a problem and I'm going to solve it. Yeah. And that is true in any marketplace. It depends on how strong the pain is. So as marketers, what we look for is areas of pain point. What is it that, that is stressing someone out on this? So, for example, in an accountancy practice, when you're getting close to deadlines, VAT deadlines, or you're getting close to end-of-year account filing, those are pain points that companies have. And so you see advertising around get your tax, you know, your tax issues solved this weekend. You know, we, you know, we're here to help you meet the deadline. 
you're going to see a lot of pain type advertising over the next few months because people will be in a lot of pain. Is it the case that a lot of people will only <clears throat> change or transform their habit when they experience pain? Uh, uh, sadly, people more, are more responsive to avoiding pain than they are for seeking pleasure. That sounds good. Can you can you um, expand on that a little bit? I'd like to like to understand that idea a little bit more. Well, it's natural, isn't it? We we avoid we we avoid burning ourselves, don't we? We move our hand away from the hot yeah. from the hot flame faster, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas we do things, you know. I mean, I think pleasure seeking is there. People do seek pleasure, but that that taps probably back into our psychological thing we were talking about earlier. It's about that seeking pleasure is about trying to fill a gap, fill a hole somewhere. Mm. But people will move towards that, but they are much more keen or much more driven to move away from pain. So it taps into this scarcity thing earlier on, the pain of not being able to eat, the pain of not being able to wipe your bottom with nice paper. <laughs> <laughs> the, the uncomfortableness of the... The, the, the idea situation. of having to use your hand to wipe your bottom is something yeah. that people do not want to go there. <laughs> and the fact yeah. that 50% yeah. of the world do yeah. use their left hand to wipe yeah. their bottom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely touching on a very sore point for a lot of people, <laughs> I think. So, uh, yeah, I haven't thought about it like that before and it makes perfect sense when you describe it and it must be difficult to realize that you actually want to hit a point of pain sometimes with certain people well look the trouble the point with my industry i fell out of love with my industry about 10 years ago okay and i and i had a real difficulty with it because i I'm very much, you know, I, I love the planet. And I'm very much uh, an eco-warrior. I really want to see us treat this planet with a lot more respect and than we do. Makes sense. And I can see overconsumption everywhere I look. I can see overconsumption and I can see just this whole idea of, co of commoditizing everything. So this is where I fell out of love with my industry. And I used to work in the retail industry 15 years ago. So I, I knew, I saw it from that side and I, and, it, and it's tough, it was tough. So yes, the idea of having to aggravate someone's pain is not that pleasant sometimes. So the way I mitigate that in myself is by selecting who I work with. So I no longer, I, I work with projects or with people that I feel deliver something or give something of value to the world so yes we still do push the pain button but i'm pushing the pain button because i know that when they travel when they traverse the other side of that pain what they're getting is of value and will help them uh-huh so is this where coaching fits in because <clears throat> we're helping people to get somewhere new or how, how does that relate to the the uh the work that you do in terms of perhaps seeing yourself as a marketing coach in some respects 
Well, that to me is about, as a marketing coach, my, my it's about unpacking this stuff with someone. So someone says, you know, I'm selling a, um, um, I'm trying to think of an example, what we could say we're selling now. Um, I've done a lot of work in personal development. So, so a lot of, with a lot of personal development type companies. Mm-hmm. So invariably that is coaching or, or selling some kind of coaching product. Mm. Um, but the pain of, co- of coaching is, is about getting people to recognize the pain of where they are and see that the pain of changing is actually less mm-hmm. than the pain of staying where they are. Uh-huh. There's that lovely old story that that gets told about there's two old guys sitting on a porch, uh, you know, sort of taking the sun and like that, and they're just sitting on the porch, they're drinking beer, and there's a dog in the middle and whining. And the guy says, why is your dog whining? And the guy slowly replies and said, he's lying on a nail. <laughs> and he says, hmm, so why doesn't he move? And he says, well, it's hot, and then it's not that painful yet. Right. You know, it's this thing about like, oh, I can't be bothered to move, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I know it's painful. And it's this thing, you know, we, we will, we will endure more pain because the fear of change is so much harder. Sometimes I think that people are maybe afraid to change because of their experience and the things that have happened in the past. And it can be very hard to realize that they have to go back and fix something before they can move forward. Do you ever yeah, find... I guess so. Yeah, I don't have to get into that one, really, because I'm not that... Kind of, like, I did train as a coach. Mm-hmm. That's how I emerged the two together. That's how I emerged marketing and coaching together. But, uh, um, yeah, of course, you have, to get, you have to get your head straight. Absolutely. Okay mindset in business mindset is everything you know we finally in the years we're starting to talk about people's psychology you know, people's psyche and psychology it's now starting you know depression and those sort of things are now starting to be, to be spoken about mm-hmm. uh, and clearly people in business suffer like everybody else does and invariably the reason a business fails is not because the business failed it's because the person running it they they didn't have the mindset to take the hard decisions or to do something necessary to move the business in the direction they wanted to take it in. Mm-hmm. Can a business grow if a person doesn't grow? Oh, good question. No, probably not. You'll right. reach a ceiling, won't you? You will reach a ceiling where it, it, it's as, it, it gets as far as you're prepared to allow it to go. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, my situation is, is pretty good. It's pretty classic, actually, because I have kept my business deliberately small i've not grown my business particularly yeah i if i'm if i'm probably honest it would have been i would probably be better off if i got a job mm-hmm. in the last few years until now but the re- <laughs> until now yeah but the reason i i well i don't know now people are getting 80 percent of their salary aren't they so maybe they could be maybe it could be quite good now i mean uh-huh. you know here's an interesting thing for you we'll get to that one in a minute so yeah okay um yeah, I chose to, 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 to keep my business the size it is so that I could be a stay-at-home father. Okay. And so that I could um, be around my family more. That was the choice I made. 
And now that my son is now 17 and is about to step out of the outside world on his own, now I will do other things. Now I will grow this project. And that's where the podcast is coming in, where I'm growing that project probably. I see. But uh, it is fascinating, <laughs> this whole idea, this, this whole thing, isn't it, about we keep things a certain size, the size that we feel comfortable with. I mean, we see this in, in people that win the lottery. You know, when someone who has never had money for wins the lottery, they often lose the money within five years because their mind cannot cope with the money. Yeah, and if you don't build it yourself, you don't really understand how it works. A lot of yeah. the time as well. We all we all use computers, not really very effectively, but f <clears throat> even then, few of us really understand how all the components and parts come together. I found it interesting that within your organization, Market That, that you have this tagline, the future is digital disruption. How does mm -hmm. digital disruption fit into the whole marketing scene or scenario <clears throat> well i i put that in there because we've not seen anything yet in terms of disruption of digital stuff and, and i and i don't know how how the current circumstance will change it but you know ai is coming down the road mm -hmm. uh, and when that hits properly it, it's going to take away a lot of jobs yeah, you know, why do you need why do you need an army of um, call center people when you can have computers answering the phone and having a conversation, a, a conversation like this one, mm -hmm. you know, with someone on their <laughs> subject? Yeah, you, know, you you could do so many things with AI, and it's coming. It's seriously seriously coming. That's a great point. And recently, I have thought about that because sometimes when you visit some websites, a little box will pop up and say, do you have any questions? And yes, that's a box. You, yep, and you will, you will type in uh, a question and you, I imagine there'll be some algorithm in there that uh, directs the answers in specific ways. But personally, I know that I'm not dealing with a person. I'm dealing with a machine or a system. And I don't like that very much. And is that is that just am I am, am I a minority? Are people just going are, are people going to be happy with that, or are they going to take a step back and look for human communication again? How do you think that's going to work? But it's out? progression, isn't it? Though I mean, the disruption is coming because it will change how we deal with society, how how we interact with things. So you'll find large organizations will adopt AI first because it will be cheaper. It will be a, a great way of reducing call center costs. You, I mean, supposing you could t reduce your call center by 80% in terms of size. Yeah, You can have AI answer the majority of the questions that you get. And when it gets pushed out of, out of, the kind of, like, you know, out of that range, I'll get, an, I'll get someone to help you out here. And you could have people, you know, filling in the gaps. So it will. That's how it will start by reducing the number of people that you're using. Yeah. Of course, we have always been. You know, we talked about autonomous trucks and autonomous vehicles coming in. Yeah. When autonomous vehicles arrive properly, and you get autonomous trucks, you can have these trucks trundling up and down the motorway. They could be electrically powered vehicles. They don't actually have to stop for anything other than a recharge. They don't have to travel fast. They could just because they're traveling 24 seven, they don't stop. They just keep going. 
You've got no one using motorway service. You've got no truck drivers using motorway service cafes. Mm-hmm. You, all of that food industry or those accommodation for truck drivers suddenly goes mm-hmm. because you've got these autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. You know, AI, when it hits, will actually radically change society. But prior to that, we've got other things happening. I mean, even just now, I mean, in terms of uh, the digital stuff, we've got digital search that's starting to come about. You know, people use their phone. And my my son's a classic example. He never types into Google. He speaks to Google. Mm -hmm. There's a whole generation that will do that stuff. So do you think talking to the technology is going to replace typing or writing into it? As it gets better, yes. As, as it becomes, I mean, you already pointed out to me today, I didn't know that Skype had a, had a live in the moment um, subtitling system. Yep, it does. Um, and, not only does it have that, impressive. yeah, absolutely, in, in real time. Not only does it have yeah. that, but it keeps indiscriminately popping up and I keep having to shut it off during our conversation. <laughs> But you've but pointed out, you've just pointed out a piece of technology that is like, you know, doing subtitles on videos yeah. is a major piece of my work. It's a thing that I have to do for clients or myself. And it, it's a big chunk of work. It is. It is. You know, and suddenly there's a, there's a piece of kit taking it over. So this is digital disruption. This is just in a little way. And then that's how it starts. It comes in a tiny bit. Yeah. I mean, there's digital disruption. But who would have, who would have thought that the largest um, hospitality company in the world would not own a single hotel. Is that Airbnb or Airbnb? Okay, right. You yeah. don't own a single hotel, and they're the largest hospitality company in the world. It's yeah, it fits <clears throat> nicely into that concept of digital disruption because it's not within the classical mode of thinking that people have. We think That's accommod- what it's about. yeah, we think yeah. accommodation hotel, etc. But really, wow. I mean, how did, how did that even happen that Airbnb became that without having any hotels? It is quite fascinating. Well, Uber's the same, isn't it? You've got a taxi company without taxis. What's next? Um, I just did a podcast interview last week with a guy doing it for grass cutting in the US. Uh, so... He has so a... what he's done. He has created. I mean, he 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 ran a um, a grass cutting company. I mean, a nice story actually. It's not published yet, but I mean, when he was seventeen, he went and cut the neighbor's lawn, and he got paid twenty dollars for it. And he enjoyed the process and thought, I wonder how I could do more of this. And by the time he was twenty five, he was running four crews cutting lawns. Okay. And by the time he was like, I'm not sure what age he was, he sold that business for, for like $10 million. And he had crews all over you know, over his state cutting lawns. And he oh. sat around, retired for a, for a few weeks and thought, this isn't going to work. So then eventually he, he, he came up with the idea of, of um, an app for lawn cutting. Okay. So what he's developed, he's basically systemized the business of lawn cutting. So someone who's a grass cutter doesn't need to learn how to do it. They literally have to have the kit. And he gives them his system. They pay him, of course. And so he gives them bookkeeping. He gives them the appointment system, everything they need to run a grass cutting business in their area. Mm. And that's what they get. 
and he has the sales side. So if someone says, I want to cut, get my lawn cut, you know, I mean, I mean, wherever they get within 20 minutes, they get three quotes or four quotes from local people in his area who are on his system. And so he's basically earning money out of, you know, he's basically doing grass cutting again, but not doing the cutting. He doesn't own the crew, the crew, someone else. So he's got a portal that people go to to find somebody to cut their grass and he yes. takes a percentage or some flat fee or whatever to have people on the portal. Yes. And they pay a like just like Uber, you to pay to be part of an Uber driver, you pay a fee to be to get to be part of Uber. Mm. And then you get paid your fee from the fare. So yeah, that's exactly the same. What he's done, he's taken the Uber model and applied it to grass cutting. Wow. I mean, to give you the ideas of it, he said to me, I said, so what can people earn out of this? He said, well, if someone works hard, he said, they'll earn $100,000 a year. Wow. That's a lot of grass. <laughs> and there is a lot of grass out there. Yeah. Well, so. yeah, but the point of what I'm getting at is that it's like, you know, that's someone who's taken an idea. No, that's digital disruption. That's take someone who's taken a concept like Uber concept and applied it to something you wouldn't even consider it would be possible to apply it to. Mm. And it, it only works because it's totally digital. Why, in my mind, does that seem both simple and complicated at the same time? Actual fact, it was seriously complicated. It took him seven years to get the thing fully operational. I mean, it took him a couple of years to get it up and line. He said, but the, making an app of this nature, he said, was really hard work. There was a lot of bits and pieces he hadn't expected. Yeah, because in, in my mind, the process, I can think about it and I can see it and I can understand it. But then when I try to imagine the practicality of it, it, it it's, my mind is blown open yeah i think what is the benefit he had on it is that he had the knowledge because he already ran a, a grounds company like he knew what was needed to run that kind of company and he and that's where it worked but i think getting it all onto the app was the challenge yeah. but you know and but all i'm getting is that there will be other disruptors there will be other people that will turn up with new ideas or new concepts that will disrupt the marketplace and in <clears> times <throat> of crisis there tends to be a greater opportunity for doing things like that because people are put under pressure to find new ways and new solutions so well that's the point isn't it we are heading into a recession most likely a world recession mm -hmm. uh, we're going to head into inflation in this country i would imagine after we've given everybody loads of money <laughs> yeah i was uh, thinking that the other day yeah yeah so there's yeah. also you know it's, it's going to be interesting times when we get out of this and it will be in those interesting times will are the mother of all invention, aren't they? Well, yeah, it does. It does appear that, um, you know, necessity yeah. drives things, drives things forward. I mean, I am really excited about this time. I think this is the most exciting time to be alive. Mm. I mean, you know, we've never out, you know, to be involved in an event that has global implications, that is a global war that doesn't involve someone fighting and killing someone is an amazing opportunity because the only times you've ever come together as a species like this yeah. has been in a global war where you yeah. pick your side but there's no side this is humanity against the environment at the moment oh yeah yeah it's it's very very interesting from a lot of 
perspectives and, and aspects because it would seem to be that we would come together to protect this so-called mother nature but it seems almost counterintuitively we're coming together to fight against this mother nature it's uh it's 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 very interesting and very complex and also when you talked about it it reminded me a little bit of the first page of hg wells's war of the worlds where he describes um the idea of a threat being mm. somewhere else coming from another planet and with the the people from <laughs> Mars or what, whatever it was and that people on Earth would have to come together to 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 fight that greater threat or that greater enemy. It's, it, you're right, it's a very interesting time where people are forced almost to communicate with each other about very important things that they haven't thought about before. And so for businesses, maybe it's a great time to take steps forward and try new things, especially in terms of digital disruption. I think it is a, a great opportunity in terms of, of finding new ways of applying your business and doing business. I mean, I, I do wonder and I do hope, and this is going to probably, probably won't be popular in some quarters, but I do hope that we rationalize what we do. I mean, you know, we, we, it got crazy what we, what we did in, in terms of business. It's got crazy, like, you know, like the market for disposable pens and you know, all the other crap that we make and produce that has no real value outside of the 10 minutes it gets used. Mm-hmm. So we've got this thing about the, the way that this is the stuff that I get really frustrated about and that I don't, that's why I don't get involved in marketing those things. Yeah. But it's, to me, it's like we, humanity's, well, there are too many of us. That's one thing that's very clear. Uh, and this pandemic, as horrible as it is, is a nice reminder that there are too many of us. Well, it's a great point you make about disposable cultures. Yeah. yeah. That we've created a lot of things that we use once and throw away. And I think that that's almost criminal, really. Because if we can't create something that is sustainable, and even with the technology as well, I like the idea of using technology so that we don't have to do the same activity again and again and again. And uh, we can do something once, we can record it, we can share it, we can help people with it, and then we can move on to the next thing rather than getting stuck doing exactly the same thing. And hopefully technology will help us. I guess it comes back to this thing about those like is that this is a deeper question about it, a humanity question really it's like so I have a podcast called life passion and business and the reason I set that podcast up was because my father um, died in uh, 2018 and uh, he was 89 years old and he really did not want to be here he had decided that he had had enough Okay. And he was a quiet man. He was he never really expressed himself much, my father. He never said much about what he went and what he went. I mean, yeah, he told me he loved me, but that was a limit of how how deep a conversation he and I could have. Um so I was sad in that respect. He never really managed to express himself in life. But I, I also recognize he actually had given up living probably five years before. 
And I could see in him, I could see those same seeds in me. I could see the fact that I was getting this disillusion with this world as he had got. And I didn't know where that was going. And so that was why I set up the podcast, because I, I thought, so, well, if I don't know the answer to this, maybe other people do. So my answer was to ask people four basic questions. What are you passionate about? What is success for you? What does success actually mean? What is your contribution to the world? And what's the meaning of life for you? Okay. And yeah, tell me more about that. I'm, I'm interested to know so, how that so, so, so those, but it, it ties into my marketing work as well, you see, because those four questions are fundamental about having a good life. If you understand where you sit with those four questions, mm -hmm. you're pretty happy in life, pretty happy where you're going. Mm. But the problem is in society is that most people, well, I would say probably 50% of the world never get beyond the base of it because there's, they're, they're more worried about survival. And they get, get a chance to consider and get a chance to consider what they're passionate about or what is success. Success for them is having and having a meal on their plate at the end of the day. Yeah, so yep. half the world don't actually get the choice on these things. You know, the other half of the world, probably 80 percent of those don't care. They, they, as, as long as they can sit and watch Netflix, they can hope it will get better. And there's a very small proportion of us who are actively seeking to find answers to this. And, and what you probably find is that most of the stuff that gets bought and sold in the world goes to those people that are, are just don't understand what they're here for. Why is that? Well, good question. I, I guess because it's possible to live a life in relative ease and comfort without actually having to live that life. You exist. But you don't ask any yeah. deeper questions about things. No. And you live your life through the potential of kids and family. And I'm not, I, I'm not this, this is not a, a criticism. This is just what people do because nothing pushes them to change. What is amazing about this time is that now we're being pushed to change. Now we're being pushed to make a decision. And do you think people will accept it or will they push back? Well, what's happened now is the government has stepped in effectively and given people on salaries 80% of their salary. So they're going to get money. So in this initial time, it will be fine. And for the next, and part of that is to stop riots on the streets because if people don't have money, they're not going to obey you, are they? If people can't buy food and, and look on and keep the basics running, they're going to revolt and fight. Yeah, so that's true. That's what the government the government has done this purely and simply to make sure we keep the keep the you know keep the natives quiet. Mm -hmm. The question what happens to me is what happens once the dust settles because as I said as we already alluded you know the world is going to be a different shape. And a lot of what worked before will not work. There won't be the free money, you know, the, the the level of money around to use the car wash, to do all these things that people used to do. Yeah, it's it's very interesting and I've been aware of these things happening recently and yet at the same time I'm also aware that in a previous podcast I interviewed the owner of AES Solar which is based I think uh, near where you are in Forest. He's, he is he is he's 100 meters down the road from where I live. 
It's a small um, I know George, I know George very well. When I first arrived here uh, yeah. 15 years ago, I considered buying his business at the time, and we had a long conversation about it. Oh, wow. So uh, he was a fascinating person to <clears throat> sit down with, and he was one of the first people that I really got in-depth with in an interview. And he described to me, and people can go back and check out the interview, um, he described to me how the government came in and incentivized people to get into the solar industry. And then when the government removed the incentives, all the companies fell apart because the companies were so constructed and based and built on all the incentives and the benefits that they could get that they weren't prepared for the removal of them. And when they remove, <clears throat> removed them all, a lot of the companies collapsed. And basically, AES Solar was left as the only company that um, was still functioning in that area of solar development because they decided not to take the cheese, basically, and decided to work with what they had. It's very interesting because sometimes we have good intentions, but we don't see the unintended consequences of them further down the road. So I'm not sure if anybody knows how it's going to play out. The, the solar industry is a good question, and it's a good example of that, actually, because I did a lot. I worked with a solar energy company um, a couple of years back on this, and I looked at this quite extensively. And so we talked earlier on about decision-making about people in pain and decision-making why people make decisions to buy something yep now solar energy going back five or six years although it was valued and important people didn't see the relevance of it in the bigger world in the wider world mm -hmm. you know the, the you know greta thunberg hadn't started her crusade yet so people weren't looking at the, this idea of how important it's going to be mm -hmm. and so having solar panels on your roof was a nice thing to do. It wasn't something that was valued. Now, the fact that the government would give you so much money to put them on the roof, because you could put them on the roof and you were earning like 20 pence a kilowatt just by sticking them on the roof, mm. which was like double what it would cost you to buy them. So you were earning so much money, it was a no-brainer to buy them if you had the cash. It was like free money. <laughs> so that's why people went to do this, because it was free money. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. So when that got and, and of course, because there was so much because there was so much free money available, companies formed very, very quickly because they could put teams in and they knew they'd get paid. Everybody would everybody was going to get paid out of this because of this because of this in this future going investment. Mm. So that's why it got so, so hot. AES was going well before then. And so they they weren't they weren't on that bandwagon. They were on they were on the kind of they were selling to the people that were more idealistic about yeah. using solar panels. Yeah, they also and had that's a why he has, more yeah. long-term vision, basically, for, mm. for what, what they wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a classic thing, though, isn't it? Isn't it? It's the, it, what the solar, that solar thing did, it actually shifted people's mindset because it was about more about making money than actually um, putting solar panels on a roof. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, great points. I was reading on your website something about the golden hour. Could you give me a little bit of information about how that relates to business marketing? And that's a strange segue because we were on uh, that's that's kind of very as very specific segue around around um, social media in a way that, that social media that, that algorithms and platforms work. 
Okay, okay. Sorry to sorry to jump away. Um, wasn't 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 my smoothest transition ever, but uh, I was. But I can see. I can see. I can see why you're trying to change the subject. That's fine. So, all right. So the social platforms. All right. Let's talk about social platforms. I want to. I want. I, I want to go over there, but I also want to okay. stay here. It's, it's a tough choice. Let's, let's talk about social platforms as, an, as another sense of it. And the golden hour will come into that. So, okay. When social media started back in 2008, where it was around that sort of time, it was a golden era. Yeah. You could get a web page. You could get a Facebook page up uh, for a business. <clears throat> you could be making money on that page within days. Mm-hmm. It was such a time i mean you you could like put anything up on that page hairdressing anything like and put an offer on that page and like oh i've got my hairdressing follow my you you could you could put anything up and you would make money Uh, ebooks anything on any subject fishing you know uh, archery the lot these things you would put them up on this and people would buy them and the reason they would buy them is because as soon as you posted on facebook facebook would show it to everybody because they were there desperate probably, for content, so they were showing everything. Yeah, there was probably a million, couple of million people on Facebook at the time. Mm-hmm. Now Facebook is what three billion people on Facebook, and at probably. the moment it's the it's the probably the main news system that most people are using at this time, and the most to communicate with their friends at this time. So going back at that time, you know, when you post something as a business page, all of your connections saw it. If you've got 100 connections, they all saw that post. Mm-hmm. Got 1,000 connections, they all saw that post. <clears throat> you were making money. And then, so that happened right across the social platform. All these social platforms formed. Some went, some arrived, you know. Um, but Facebook became, obviously, the, the dominant one in, in, in the general social space. Um, now there are probably four or f- five social platforms that are have power. Facebook is on on the kind of business social side. Instagram is actually business in certain areas, which is a younger market. Uh, so those are the largest. Uh, probably um, LinkedIn is definitely the business sector, and it sits kind of in, kind of around that area. But there's it's lower. It's a lower quantity than than Instagram or um, than than um, than Facebook, and then. Twitter sits somewhere under there. And then there are a plethora of other social media channels like Pinterest and all the bits and pieces. So that, and they all have different kind of focuses on nuances. Mm-hmm. If you're in the younger market, it's like Snapchat and those sort of things. And they are kind of the, the, the teen market or the early 20 market. Now, all of these platforms had to solve the problem of how to dis- determine who sees stuff. Mm-hmm. When you've got when they're so big, when you've got three and a half billion people on a platform, how do you make a decision who's going to see what? So they had to come up with an algorithm or something to do that. So initially, they is, used likes. Is, is this because if you were looking at people's posts in real time, it would just be like <laughs> scrolling down your page so fast you wouldn't have time? Yeah. You would, okay. you, it wouldn't, I mean, you would, you just, it'd just be so much there. Yeah. There's so much content. They would just, just, you just never see anything, would you? It'd just be so fast. So much stuff <laughs> passing. I mean, Twitter's, Twitter's like that a bit, really. If you uh, watch Twitter feed in real time, it's moving really fast. It's too fast for me. If you've got a lot of big friend network in Twitter. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so they had to come up with a solution. And then also to cap it all, uh, Facebook particularly um, developed an advertising platform. Mm. Now, suddenly, uh, money's involved because originally Facebook was free. Right. But suddenly they got an advertising. Now there's, a, now there's an incentive for them not to show people content. That's they want you to see their adverts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they've got you, other groups of clients now that they need to keep happy. Yeah. Right. So Facebook is an amazing uh, platform because as a digital marketer, I can find out pretty much anything I want to on Facebook. I can, I can ha set up a um, a series of questions that I would like to see people who who like Deepak Chopra who do this, who are married, who have got children, who went to university, who did. You know, I can set up a complete list of who I want to show my adverts to. Mm. And when you look at the Facebook feed, if you count the posts on the feed, every fourth post is an advert, is a sponsored post. So that's 25% at least. Right. Yes. No. Yeah, oh. count four, then it'd be the fifth one, and then one, two, three, four, then the next one, one, two, three, four, the next one. Oh, it's okay, about okay. it's about that. It's about twenty about twenty percent okay. of the posts are paid. That's huge. So that's basically yeah. But that's huge. a huge amount. <laughs> that's a huge amount. Twenty percent. Yeah, and and those posts those clicks are anything from twenty five to two pound a click. <clears throat> Maybe okay. more, depending on the market. So that's the money that they're making. So the question is, is how does someone as a business owner, because it's expensive, getting actually uh, anyone to click your adverts these days is pricey. So Facebook, as I said, is, is like 20 to two pound a click, maybe maybe more in some, some marketplaces. AdWords, Google. So what did Google do? Google changed their policy a few years ago. They took away, they originally when I used to use Google, there were adverts on the right hand side and it was organic on the left. I think I remember something like that. <laughs> yeah, so, so search engine optimization would let you. So this is where you where you put the right information, use the right tags, the right words would allow the search engine to catalog your your website. So it would appear on a certain place on the page relative to the search term that someone puts in. So if I put in red fishing, you know, a fishing rod. Uh, Murray or some fishing rods in Murray, I get where I can buy fishing rods in Murray. Yeah. That's how it used to work. They obviously changed their philosophy because they wanted money. Obviously, they, they shifted and put the adverts at the top of the page. The left-hand side, the right-hand side of the page now is empty. And the adverts appear at the top and the organic appears underneath all of the advertising. Yep. So, so all of that advertising now. So now on Google, um, I have got clicks down as low as 10 pence a click, mm -hmm. but it's rare. I mean, I think most people will be paying 40 pence a click. Uh -huh. Now, remember our 80-20 we spoke about earlier on, our 80-20 rule? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Pareto principle. Right. So 80-20 rule says of anyone looking at a marketplace, only a very small per percentage are actually going to buy it. That makes sense. So it also applies to the clicks you get. So when you look at an advert and someone clicks that advert, they arrive on your website, 80% of them will leave. 
and never come back. And if I just paid a pound for that advert, I just spent 80 quid. I, I will have spent 80 pounds minimum before I get someone who is actually interested, potentially interested in what I have to, to buy, to sell. To sell. Is, that, is, is that viable for, for companies to, to pay like that? It, it seems to me that that would, it seems to me that for a lot of small businesses, that would just be out of the question. That's the problem. It's out of the question for small businesses. Larger companies can. I mean, I know people that are spending 40 grand a week on, on, on advertising. Seriously? Seriously. Seriously. Wow. And, you know, it, people in, in, there are some search terms. So, all right, the, the most expensive search term, I think, is something like um, £150 a click, $150 a click. And it's for a very unique um, medical condition. And I can't remember the name of it. And it's very rare. Okay. But it's... Um, lawyers in the US that will, will search this term because they are collecting people for a, um, um, a class action. Mm -hmm. And the class action is probably worth 100 million. Mm. So if I need people for my class action and it's costing me $150 per person, it doesn't matter if I spend a million quid on getting the people I need because I'm actually trying to put something together which is worth 100 million. The bigger it is, the more you can invest kind of scenario, something like that. So the same with Facebook advertising. If you want to do Facebook advertising, you need to be selling a, an expensive product, something uh, to the order of it's got to be a hundred pound plus to do to make it worth doing Facebook advertising. That's an interesting you, point. Not, I haven't heard anybody say that before. You're, you're not going to get a return on your advertising. If it's less than that. Okay. So right, that's, the advertising or the money, you know, the advertising backdrop we're against. Okay, so now if I want to do this without actually spending any money, what I have to do is finding a way of, of working the system. Okay. And so the only way that all of the platforms do is they, they rely on engagement because they want to keep people on their platform. As far as Facebook's concerned, the longer I hold you on the platform, the more chance you have of seeing an advert. Okay. The same applies to LinkedIn, the same applies to Twitter, those sort of places. Makes sense. So if I, if I start a conversation on Facebook on a, on a thing that like says, um, what sort of, um, what's your favorite board game? And someone says, oh, I quite like Monopoly. And we have a conversation about Monopoly. If I have a conversation with someone, that post will automatically get pushed higher in the, in the algorithm. So this is what this golden hour is about. What Facebook do and what LinkedIn do is they will see your post as a business owner or even as on personal profile, and they'll show it to about 5% of your audience. So if you've got 1,000 people who are your friends or you've got 1,000 people who are your LinkedIn connections, they will show it to about 5% of that group. Wow. Now, if members of that group start to interact with that post, they will go, this post is interesting, it has value, we'll show it to more people. So they'll, they'll open it up, they'll start opening up its, its uh, reach to more and more people. Mm -hmm. And the more people that pile in, mm -hmm. the bigger the reach of that post gets. 
Right. And that's why the golden hour is important, because this has to happen within the first hour of the thing being posted. Because if it doesn't, it just gets sort of memory hold or something? Just, just It just gets dropped down the, down the feed and doesn't just gets ignored. <clears throat> wow. Not and, current anymore. Wow. So people have to act quickly in order to have some benefit from it. If you're trying to if you're trying to work the system, you have to act quickly. Yes, I mean working the system is is all that they all say. You shouldn't gain the system, but you know, but we do. Basically, what we do, we create LinkedIn pods or we create groups of friends around us who will always comment on our stuff. I mean, the idea is if you've got it's back to this thing I talked about authority. If you've got a page or a, or a, or a place where you've got some authority and people like what you say and they see your post and they comment on you regularly, suddenly you've got authority. And then you that authority is valued by Facebook because it gives you more traction. I mean, you see, you must have seen these people who get regularly get 100 plus comments on a post. I've, I'm aware that it happens. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it's organized but now that you've explained that it sort of is beginning to click together in my head yeah it's just that once you once you build a friend network who are responsive to you you it's almost it almost happens it's like building a tribe it's automatic it just happens you just build your tribe and that's why this idea about consistency about showing up about being there about always being there about, about being there every single day is important the more you show up, the more consistent you are, the more you get seen. The more you get seen, the more people comment, the more people comment, the more work, the more the more you get shown. The more you get shown, the more you get seen. And, you know, this that's why this golden hour is so critical. Wow. And can you talk about how that might develop in the future? Is that hour going to become half an hour? Or, you know, is there is there a trend in a certain direction? Will that change? What do you think? The algorithm will always change. They'll okay. do something different. I'll, I'll, once we all get used to this process, they'll do something different. They'll have to. Mm. I mean, the, the key to it, bear in mind, this is a symbiotic relationship. As much as we need them, they need us. Uh, yeah, as much I understand. Absolutely. Yeah, they require yeah. content creators and consumers as well. Yeah, sorry, please continue. They do. They do. One thing you have to forget, remember, though, is that neither Facebook nor Google are our friends. They are not. They're not on your side. They are businesses looking to make a month, looking to make, you know, looking to please shareholders. Mm. But so with with with, years, a, with an understanding, you know, evil. Oh yeah, yeah, that was their um, logo, motto, phrase, which mm. I always thought was a bit strange because. I always thought you always wanted to focus on something positive, like create or invent or make. <laughs> and they had like uh, do no evil or don't be evil or something like that. And uh... they had do no, they do no evil. And and this, look, I mean, I've worked in the AdWords platform for years, and I mean, I don't do too much of it these days because it just makes me angry. The sort of crap they do in that platform mm -hmm. to trap the unwary is just wrong mm. so if yeah. i if, if you say to me i want to set an ad budget of of 20 pounds uh, 20 pounds a month well i want to spend 100 pounds no more than 100 pounds a month on adwords okay so we'll set our budget at three pounds a day okay so we're, we're going to spend three pounds a day on a very simple advert on advert on adwords 
right? In other words, reserve the right to double your budget without warning. It, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> and the reason they do that is because they know, they say that over the month, you will not pay any more than your budget over the month. But in the early stages of the campaign, you will. Now, they know that most people's campaigns don't work within the first 10 days. And so what most people do is they try it for 10 days and then switch off and try something else. Mm -hmm. So by doubling the budget, what they've effectively done is they're nabbing that money in the first 10 days. Right, right. What you would have spent over a month, yeah. they take in 10 days. And that's exactly what happened to me with the previous business and doing little bits of advertising online that's exactly what happened i should have spoken to you first <laughs> <laughs> so here's another one here's another one. facebook's the same so here's another one i did on facebook so i did we did a uh, an a b test so you, you know what a b testing is yeah yeah you put out uh, two and you it. see which one yeah. works right so you basically test one advert against another mm -hmm. uh, to see which content or which which is more attractive right so we set up an A-B test and we set it up for, I think it was, we were going to do 50 quid A-B test uh, on, a, on a campaign. And it became very obvious within literally two days, which advert was winning. Very obvious. Okay. So we switched it off and committed the rest of the money to the new, to the advert that was winning. Right. Logical, logical step. Logical step. Right. So the price point we were paying for the winning advert was about 15 pence a click or something like that, I think, at the time. When we turned it on to the new advert, mm -hmm. it came in at like 20 plus, 23 pence a click. Mm -hmm. We didn't get the price we were getting for the original advert. Uh -huh. uh, so they, they, they've calculated in advance, obviously, how much they can skim from everything. I, I suspect what happened is... We set a an original um, agreement to advertise for like five days and spend 50 quid. Mm -hmm. And we stopped that on day two. So we'd only actually spent 20. Mm -hmm. When we set the new advert up, they took the money that they lost, the 30 pounds, that they yeah. didn't get because yeah. we closed the advert down yeah. and stuck it into the next advert. So they would get it in there and they adjusted the the Day, you know, the, the, the click price yeah. to get that bit of money that they'd already planned for. That's what it looked like. Yeah, and it also looks to me from that description like when they get the information about how much budget you have, they want it all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and you know, people kind of go, oh, you know, and you just kind of, it's Facebook. They're a business and that's what they, you know, that's what they're there for. They're there to provide money for their shareholders. Yeah. Yeah. And people forget about that. People forget about the backside, which is probably why people need to consult with marketing experts, <laughs> digital fixers and people like that in order to, uh, in order to get that information. Yeah. People are, it, it can be confusing. It's very easy to get lost. There's a lot of information for people who have tried to set up their 
uh, marketing and advertising in something like Facebook, yes, it is a sim simplistic process. But if you've looked at that screen with all those boxes and all those different little things that you can check, Mark, there's it's very easy to get lost on one of those pages because there's... Well, it's very... They make it deliberately complicated so that people will spend money. I mean, one of the biggest things is boosting a post. If you boost a post on Facebook, all you're just doing is giving them money. Yeah, it's a great There's point. no control over that. You, yeah. There's no control. Where, you, you've not got the finesse or the control of where that boosted post goes to. That always plays on the back of my mind when I post. Like I, I post a lot on social media and uh, on Facebook, it will pop up. Boost this post to an ex yeah. to to another three thousand people in your local community yeah. for an extra twenty yeah. pounds or something, and yeah. it's so tempting. <laughs> It is tempting. Uh, and if you've got the time and, and prepared to put the work in, it's yeah. better to go into the ad into the ad network, into the ad system there yeah. and do a boosted post, but mm. actually take control about who sees it. Mm. Be really yeah. specific about where it goes. Yeah. That's the important thing about it. Yeah, and it probably helps to get help as well at the same time for, for things like that. I mean, yeah, but there's a question. That's a question that's unanswered. That what's you know what's going to happen going forward? Because you know Facebook and AdWords and any other ad platform will be ready to take our money in the next few months. And you know, and I would imagine because people can't go out anywhere, so advertising is going to get more expensive in these platforms. Yeah, and people's focus and attention is going to be directed towards these platforms. And if there's more people, there's going to be more competition. So people will be fighting with each other for the same space. And we've You're already fighting. Yeah. 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 And... You're in an auction. That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah, You're yeah. in an auction. Oh, my God. Our social media is going to be us auctioning ourselves and our information <laughs> against each other. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? We are, I mean, we are in such uncharted waters and it's so exciting to know where it's going to head and lead. I don't know. Oh, but, you know, in all yeah. that, maybe something will change. Maybe there's room for something new to turn up. Well, I think there will maybe be room <clears throat> for more organic platforms. But what I've just seen is the, the big fish eating the smaller fish. So um, when mm. when Facebook offers to buy Snapchat, but Snapchat says no, then Facebook just integrates into Instagram, which it owns all the Snapchat features. So uh, there's a lot of yeah. big companies buying smaller companies. Google originally bought YouTube when it started to grow. And uh, and there's a positive and a neg negative side to all these things. My Microsoft bought Skype, um, which is the platform that we're using for this, this conversation. And in one sense, it's nice to have the, the bigger company that can invest more into something and be prepared to make a loss, but still push forward. But on the other side, you can get lost in the shuffle. You can get lost in the mix as well. So, uh, you know, two sides to everything. Um, you know, positive story would be um, Facebook bought the company Oculus for virtual reality and has been prepared to make a slight loss in order to make virtual reality more accessible to the public, basically by providing mm. uh, um, cheap or cheaper um, resources and equipment available to people. So, um, See, that, I, the, 
virtual reality yet. That's another thing we talked about earlier about the coming of AI or the coming of digital disruption. We haven't seen virtual reality yet make it make its make its play. That that yeah, has yet to come. Yeah, that's that's in that's in the back of my mind as well because I focus on digital elements as well in my spare time and free time and I'm aware of how that's progressing. I'm also aware of how slow it is and and how it takes people a long time to integrate simplistic new things into their world. Maybe it's yeah. faster today than it was before. But imagine, but, imagine yeah. though, going, indeed, but imagine, uh, like, you know, we're getting used to virtual conferencing at the moment. I mean, you know, this is the thing, what's going what's gonna to change? All right, here's a digital disruption thing that's going to change. Everybody's locked down at the moment. We're all in our homes with our kids, you know. Mm -hmm. Are we going to want to go back to commuting when this is all over? If if business worked, if I was able to do business online like this, why why should I go to an office? And why should the company pay for the office and the space? Good question. So, and what would happen if I could get a pair of glasses I could put on my face and I could sit in this pair of glasses and I could be sitting in a in a virtual office where we're all sitting around the table talking to each other? And you can see the selling point of it is going to be you're going to save uh, time because you don't have to travel. <clears throat> it's going to be better for the environment. I can sort of see the scripting yeah. of how it how it's going to come out. Um, but I said like, yeah, that that idea of that like, you know, you think you see in science fiction films of people you know with me having a virtual meeting with all the people around the table, you know, as holograms. Well, you could do this with a pair of glasses, couldn't you? You could actually have if if the virtual reality thing works really well you could sit there and have a meeting with a, with four or five people face to face as though you're in in the room with them by wearing these glasses yeah and i'm pretty sure that for the the high-end really high-end businesses that technology already exists to a certain extent um but it takes quite a while for the prices to come down and we need big companies to invest in things mm -hmm. so that uh, so that they're they're getting mm -hmm. some traction there and um you know even things like um even though the iphone really only took off about 10 years ago if you look back apple were experimenting in sort of early 1980s with similar devices and similar kinds of ideas and i've I've seen mm -hmm. like the promo videos for the future of what technology is going to be. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it's really interesting the things that they got right and the things that they got wrong. You know, obviously it doesn't yeah. have a straight road, but um, the ideas are still there. You know, virtual reality has been around as a concept for, for quite a while. And, you know, headsets were tested in the 60s and 70s by um by different companies um who were experimenting at that time obviously the technology wasn't there at that point but um things are getting smaller they're becoming more integrated uh it's getting frightening you can't keep up with it <laughs> and again that's why people have to i think seek help within the digital sphere because it is changing so quickly and if you're focused on your business, then very often you're not aware of everything else that's going on around about. And we need to bring in other people to, to help us um, understand all those elements. Mm. So what's on, yeah. 
what's on your mind in terms of your work and your business at the moment? What what are you doing and what's exciting you and what areas are you looking at? Uh, I am in a very weird place at the moment because um, there's a couple of things going on in my life at the moment, which makes it weird. Um, my wife gave up work last year because of some some health issues, and we we had a diagnosis in in February. So we now know that she's in the early stage of Parkinson's. So so that's that's you know it's it's nice to get that diagnosis and know where we're up to. So that's that's kind of like that took my mind a lot off business last year really and i and i wasn't as, as focused as i should have been on stuff so but when january hit this year it was a strange time actually because i lost a couple of clients and gained a couple of clients but in, on balance i lost more than i gained mm-hmm. and so that's been a, an interesting focus trying to trying to rebuild the mar- marketing clients this year and of course now this has hit mm-hmm. so that has changed the focus completely in that respect um, my current focus is very much in the podcast. Uh, I'm putting together a virtual event at the moment, um, which I want to launch two weeks today. Okay. So that's why I'm up. That's why I'm working really hard to get that virtual event sorted out. Um, so that's what I'm excited about at the moment. And it'll be a three day event as far as I'm working at the moment. And the working title is moving beyond the change at the moment uh and i'm currently looking for speakers for it so that's where i am that's what that's what my project at the moment is what i'm quite excited about is wow and um what is the framework for how an event like that gets organized uh how do people find out about it and you know what could they expect from it okay so the framework on that event I have some software that is designed to operate it. So that takes a lot of the pain out of doing this directly because you can do an event like this using webinar software and a variety of other bits and websites. But I have a piece of software that does it all for me. But it certainly handles all the website stuff and all the emails and things. So that's quite useful. Um, And I bought that last year with a view to doing virtual summits. And I never quite got my act together to sort it. But now I am. the promotion of an event like that, the best way to promote that event is by the speakers themselves. So I'm looking for speakers who have email lists of a thousand plus, basically, because they will be the leverage points. It will be their audience and the combined audience of the 15 to 20 speakers that I pull together um, that will make up the body of the uh, of the listeners. Uh, and obviously, there's also the podcast as well. So the podcast um has quite an American contingent, so I'm assuming that it will pull in quite a few US, US people as well. So that's how it will probably be marketed. Um, in terms of the actual event itself, I've had a number of ideas. I'm new to this. I've not done one of these events like this, so it's going to be quite an experiment for me. Um, I think it will be an integration between using a Facebook um, group um, and probably some lives in that group. Then there'll be the um actual events themselves actual um, training themselves would go out from this um, from this platform that I'm using and then I'll probably also use the um, the podcast platform that I've got and there's a facility there to do live podcasts actually like live radio so I will probably use that live facility because it gives it more energy so yes like doing a live show never done one of those before other than on Facebook lives but we'll see 
Oh, it sounds pretty exciting to, to go in a new direction and try something new, especially at this time to do that. And when people are focused digitally on the digital information and they're, they're at home maybe and they've got some time, it's, it's the right time to launch it, I think. Yes, it probably is, isn't it? I think it's gonna, it's, it's, something will happen. It'll be, it's going to be interesting, whatever happens. So in terms of this virtual event that you're planning, the uh, conference or the summit, as uh, people call it now, how would you define success within that area? What is your vision for the future? You know, What are you looking to develop and achieve? Most of my clients at the moment, one of them is paying, I think. The others have said they're probably not. So I have a cash crisis like most people. And so if this summit generates some cash for myself and the people that are on it, that will be good. So that's a, a short, immediate gain, possibly. But it's not the overriding possibility. The override is it's about giving into the world because that's what life, passion, business does. I, I want to give something out to the world. So I'm hoping that the people I bring together will provide value for people and they will support them in how in moving forward on a longer term thing for me, it will build the reputation and the authority of the podcast and I'll get more listeners on the podcast. And as you're a podcast host yourself, you know how important that is because the more listeners you get on a podcast, the more, the more authority it gets, the more opportunities you have for other things with that podcast. So at the moment, this podcast is somewhere, and it's it's not huge. I get probably around three to five hundred downloads per show, which apparently in the podcast world is quite good, because the majority, the podcast industry is another eighty twenty. You know, eighty yeah. percent of the podcasts get listened to are the most famous ones. Everyone else is just scrabbling for the scraps, mm. in a way, in terms of the audience. But in these times that we're in, the podcast audience is growing massively. I've noticed an upsurge in my podcast in the last week. So I know there's a lot more people listening to podcasts at the moment. Not doing much else, are they? So, um, <laughs> so you know, so if I can grow the podcast, and well, you know, we grow our podcast, we get more opportunity, maybe sponsorship, maybe something. So that's, that's the kind of longer term view, I guess. Mm. Super. Well, it sounds like a pretty exciting direction to be going in. So um, I'm interested to see how it turns out. And I don't want to mm. take up too much of your time today. So I want to ask people to investigate the work that you do, investigate your podcast. So where can people reach out, connect with you and find more information? Now, they can find me on LinkedIn, Paul Harvey on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Again, Paul Harvey and Market That, are both on Facebook. Uh, and you can find me at the podcast lifepassionandbusiness.com. Super. Thank you so much for the time and the energy that you've put into our conversation today. I really appreciate it. The information has been invaluable. And I very much hope that we get an opportunity to connect again at some point in the future. So thank you very much. I'm sure we will, Graham. Thank you so much, Graham. It's great, been to, great to be here. Thanks. Uh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Made in Mari is a product of the Academy of Language Therapy and Life Coaching. Book a free online personal or professional development consultation today. What are you waiting for?